the March 10th, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals, Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on National Middle Name Pride Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always... A problem America can't seem to fix. <laughs> Muller, the fake news dog. <laughs> yeah. You know that uh, National Middle Name Day? That's today. National Middle Name Day. Huh? Middle Name Pride Day, oh, I should say. Okay. So you have pride in your middle name. Because yeah. some people are ashamed of their middle names. Do you feel yeah. that way? No, I don't. Actually, what is, what is I, your... uh, uh, Stephen. Stephen, that's a nice middle name. Yeah, it's. Uh-huh. It was. <laughs> is it with a V or with a P? It's a PH. PH. Yeah. You're not a Stephen, though. No, I've wanted it to be spelled the other way. In fact, for years I spelled it with a V instead of a PH until I finally saw my birth certificate. Yeah. And realized I was wrong. Stephen. 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 Would you like? <laughs> Would you like to reveal to you the think world? Stephen is uh, more effeminate Stephen. with a PH it, uh, because of Stephanie. Yes. I don't know. I'm just yeah, yeah. wondering if that's where that comes yeah. from. Because you know. never hear of a female called Stephanie. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> you ever use vocal fry when you're talking, Mike? Uh, you know, like Kim Kardashian? Uh, not. I. Probably do unknowingly, but I hope not. Katy Perry, <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> your during the the fry, mm-hmm. as they call it, the your f- vocal folds are only open for a very short time, <laughs> and therefore it takes very little breathing air when you're talking. <laughs> you know about that? No, this is the first time that I'm aware of the. Fry. The fry. Really? Yeah. Really? I never heard it before. Yeah, until yeah. you brought it up. Vocal fry. This is from Smithsonian Magazine, mm-hmm. by the way. Vocal fry or speaking in a creaky lower register can be a divisive topic here in the U.S. of A. <laughs> Some find the fry an abrasive, unprofessional affectation, while others think it's like, whatever. But now, new research shows that humans aren't the only species that can produce this guttural vibration. Dolphins and whales routinely use an air-driven nasal sound very much like vocal fry and is critical to their survival. In the new study, researchers uncovered that whales use structures in their noses called phonic lips, which vibrate like the larynx does in humans to produce the fry. I'm not doing a good job of it, but here's here's an example of your of your fry. This is uh, uh, what's her name? You know, it's that person who has a last name, has a bunch of sisters, and they're not famous for anything except Kardashian. Yeah, there you, there go. you go. Yeah, they're not famous. Yeah. They're famous for being famous. They're famous, but they're also famous. The one is doesn't she have a large buttocks? That would be Kim. Kim has a large buttocks. Yes, she has a large posterior. I, th- I think she's actually enhanced her buttocks. Yes, she has. She? Yes, no. I understand that to be true. Mm. Well, well, she's got this vocal fry. Okay. We're going to listen to her. Maybe now. her so, large yeah. buttocks have created yeah. some kind of vocal anomaly. 
Or maybe that puts such a strain on her vocal cords yeah. that it drags yeah. her down. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And out a little bit. Green. Four. Time. Oh. Now, poverty. Do it. You might like that one. Out, out my lip on the outfit. And yeah. you did what yeah. you want and what you get. Yeah. I, the interesting. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. you guys do. Yeah, yeah <laughs> don't you. <laughs> it is a little bit irritating. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Wow. Oof. Glad that's over with. <laughs> I know there are biological weapons. There are such a thing as auditory weapons that the U.S. could deploy. I think we could use that. I think Uh, they would. Probably (laughs) use it at Abu Ghraib. (laughs) Because vocal fry requires little air, it works well for whales in their echolocation clicks used in hunting. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what Kim Kardashian is doing. She's hunting. (laughs) Actually, Uh just another layer of insight Mm -hmm. from Weekly Signals. Yes. I think this story is clickbait. I believe you could be right about this. Because they they found out that whales make these guttural vibration sounds. And they think, well, what does that really sound like? It's more like a... You know, in a whale, you can imagine. (laughs) That's true. That I've heard in multiple whale recordings. I've heard that. So then you got Kim Kardashian, you know, the writers or whoever. I came from the scientists. Yeah. But they're saying, I think the scientists are desperate now because you know, everybody wants to be famous. And, and they're getting snowed under. Yeah. So how can we be famous? Let's latch on to this Kim Kardashian thing. There you go. It's kind of like bears, too, you know? <laughs> Did you ever eat a moth? Not on purpose. I think a f- really? couple have flown into my mouth in the summertime. You know, I've been out really? outdoors and some. Well, bugs have flown into my mouth and never did. Oh, yeah, everybody has a bug. You ever have a bug fly in your nose? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's unnerving because first thing you want to do is squeeze your nose, and the poor insect is now... Well, yeah. He's gone. I don't want to squeeze my nose. I want to exhale hard. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be my first... Well, it it gets itchy. I don't want to squash It It's itchy in there. So I... Exhale. Or blow your nose. Yeah, I've probably done that hold, strategy. Hold up yeah. on top there yeah. where the bone is. And, yeah. and just then exhale. really let go. Yeah. From National Geographic, in the northern Rockies, grizzly bears feast on as many as 40,000 moths a day wow. per bear. Wow. Yeah. 40,000. 40,000. Whew. That's a yeah, I've tried that. <laughs> I got up to about eight or 9,000. I was out. <laughs> They're army cutworm moths. That's what the bears eat. Silvery, one and a half inches long insects. Every summer, billions of moths flock to the northern Rockies. It's like they're going skiing or something, the way they wrote this. (laughs) Billions of moths, they just, they flock, really? They're going up there. They're migrating migrating, to the northern Rockies to escape the heat of the plains and feed on alpine plants. During the day, they rest under high elevation scree. I had to look that up. Okay, scree. Do you know what scree is? You don't need to look it up. I know what it is. Okay. It's loose rocks. Okay. So they're up there in the Rockies, Rockies, where there's are rocks, and there's loose rocks, and they just find a little place under. Yeah. But you know, like a little cave to them. But billions of them find enough room yeah, up there, huh? Apparently, apparently, yeah, apparently. Like yeah. Wow. It's a lot it's of. It's the Rockies Mountains. Mountains. Moths aren't that big, and the yeah. Rockies are. Yeah. Oh. And when, they're, uh, when they uh, get up, they sup the nectar of flowers. Sup it. 
The insects get fatter on nectar, increasing to upward of 75% body fat. Jeez. That's a lot of fat on a moth. Yeah, it is. That's when the bears chow down. Yeah. Because they got these nice fatty treats. Yeah. The grizzly bears scale peaks of up to 13,000 feet and dig through the scree to consume tens of thousands of moths a day. They're just inhaling them. Nobody knows how long they've been doing this. Wow. The first uh, reports date back to Yellowstone in the 1950s, but scientific research on army cutworm moths didn't begin until the 1980s. Wow. Here's some top-of-the-line news that, that stories That is the kind right of here. stuff that people will take away from the show. And... You don't want to hear about Ron DeSantos no. I talking at the Reagan Library. Oh. What an ass. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to cut worm moth Reuben sandwiches... At Benji's, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, freeform, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. From Hakai Magazine. Hakai. Hakai. Sea level is rising faster than at any time in recorded history. You know about that? Well, I've been... You're, you're right next to the sea. Are you watching it rise? Yeah. I so far, it is anecdotal. I can't verify that I know that it's rising, but it does seem, in the many years I've been going down to the beach, that it is rising. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you're just shrinking. It could be. That's yeah. part of it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I've gotten closer to the ocean than ever before, and it just seems like that. Well, that's going to redraw the map yeah. when that uh, yeah. sea level rises, yeah. especially down in your uh, low-lying coastal area. Mm -hmm. But knowing precisely which ocean front lots will be inundated and which will remain dry is a much more daunting task than just going out there and looking and seeing it's rising. That effort may have an ally almost no one would have guessed. One of the smallest and least conspicuous forms of life, lichens. Oh, okay. More than 18,000 species of lichens have been described worldwide. Each is a community made up of one or more species of fungus or alga or cyanobacteria. This combination has enabled lichens to survive in diverse and often hostile conditions. Everything from tropical heat to bitter Antarctic cold. You got lichens there. You got them. To scratch out its niche, each species has developed to tolerate different levels of temperature, light, air quality, and salt tolerance. It's this property, salt tolerance, that makes them so useful in understanding sea level rise. The species of lichen that grow on a coastal site can be effective indicators of low levels of saltwater intrusion and spray. Modern science offers an array of tools to study sea level rise from satellite data to groundwater and soil sampling. Lichens are another way to see at smaller site-specific scales where the sea is coming next and where it's not. Makes sense. Just go see what's going on, yeah. what kind of lichens there. Yeah. That means you got some uh, salt going on. Right. Locally, my money, as we've talked about before, my money is on the Balboa Peninsula yeah. for, for being overrun. And I don't know how they Well, stop. that's an easy call. Yeah. It used to be a swamp. It used to be a swamp. It still is a swamp. Yeah. It only is filled with rich assholes <laughs> right now. A swamp of them. Yeah. If you want to drain a swamp, 
get rid of the rich assholes. Yeah. 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 And speaking of climate change, get ready for zombie forests. Okay. Yeah. Zombie forest. It's another one of them clickbait things. <laughs> if we just said trees are dying. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't be listening. From Stanford University News. A warming climate has left a fifth of the conifer forests that blanket California's Sierra Nevada stranded in habitats that no longer suit them. In these zombie forests, older, well-established trees, including ponderosa pines, Douglas firs, and sugar pines, still tower overhead. But few young trees have been able to take root because the climate has become too warm and dry for them to thrive. The young trees aren't making it. The old trees are going to die off eventually, yeah. and all have a bunch of brush. Mature trees are able to survive even after their local climate has shifted, but the species is not likely to grow back in these areas after climate change aridification. God. The study found the forest is more likely to be replaced by smaller shrub-like vegetation that is adapted to warmer, drier conditions. Forests also play a critical role in regulating water quality and sequestering carbon. This new study can help forest managers and policymakers prioritize their limited resources. That could mean conserving zombie forests in mismatched regions for as long as possible, or directing resources to areas where the climate is still aligned with the vegetation, mm -hmm. which is where I'd be shifting it, I think. Yeah, same makes sense. It's kind of a losing cause fighting Mother Nature on this. If you've spent any time in the eastern Sierras, you know how many of those trees there are. Just It's, a, it's beautiful, spectacular scenery and trees, but to know that they are basically, this is the one of the last generations of those to survive, is, uh, that's truly depressing because that's a beautiful area. It really is. Scenery. Screw your scenery, Mike. Well, I mean, it, it is good to look at, but it is also beneficial for all of us. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, that's a trouble with people in general. Scenery. Mm-hmm. They travel the world for what? To look scenery. At scenery. Look at that scenery over there. They spend billions of dollars in homes for what? Scenery. Scenery. <laughs> From BBC News. A new way of sucking carbon dioxide from the air and storing it in the sea has been outlined by scientists. How about that? This is a good one. Carbon capture. This novel approach captures CO2 from the atmosphere up to three times more efficiently than current methods. The warming gas can be transformed into bicarbonate of soda okay. and stored safely and cheaply in seawater. Okay. I think you make it into a soft drink. There you go. Yeah. You can store it in your Carbon. stomach. Yes, you can store it in your stomach. I wonder how that would work, though. I imagine that, you know, you'd find a way to yeah. um, expel. Re recarbonize. Yeah, recarbonize the atmosphere yeah, if you probably. put it in, if yeah. you drank it. Yeah. One big problem for most current approaches to direct air capture is cost. CO2, although a powerful warming agent, is relatively diluted in the atmosphere at around 400 parts per million. So big machines that require large amounts of energy are needed to both absorb and discharge the CO2. This new approach, however, uses off-the-shelf resins and other chemicals and promises far greater efficiency at lower cost, removing CO2 for less than $100 a ton. That's 
Now, this is, these are off-the-shelf resins and other chemicals. That's what scares me right there. Yeah. In what quantity would you need these off-the-shelf Exactly. Items? And they didn't get into any details yeah. on this. So would that be a good thing at the end of the day? I'd want to know more. I've seen the technology where they have these giant fans and they suck in the air. Yeah. And then they decarbonize. That's it. what they're talking about. Cost a bazillion yeah, yeah, dollars yeah, to do stuff yeah, like that because yeah. it's in such low quantities, yeah, it's, the, the CO2 is. Yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. <laughs> what, Molly? Huh. Oh, a little change of pace, Molly wants. <laughs> From the Atlantic, here's a little quote to think about from an opinion piece by George Packer. The piece is entitled, A View of American History That Leads to One Conclusion. And then a little subtitle here helps you along. For many historians today, the present is forever trapped in the past and defined by the worst of it. We're now living in a golden age of fatalism. American culture, movies, and museums, fiction, and journalism is consumed with the most terrible subjects of the country's history. Slavery, Native American removal, continental conquest, the betrayal of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, colonialism, and militarism. In scholarship, works whose objective is to puncture our hopeful but misguided myth dominate, and titles like Unworthy Republic, The End of the Myth, claim prestigious prizes. This mode of analysis doesn't just revise our understanding of American history, illuminating areas of darkness that most people don't know and perhaps would rather not. It also draws a straight line from the past to the present. And I think this is the point. Okay. In a country world famous for constant transformation, historical fatalism believes that nothing ever really changes. Mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. Modern police departments are the heirs of slave patrols. Historical fatalism combines inevitability and essentialism. The present is forever trapped in the past and defined by the worst of it. The new fatalism gives us an open and shut vision of the past, but for inspiration in shaping the future, we have to look elsewhere. Meanwhile, from the New York Times, a former U.S. Army private was sentenced to 45 years in prison after he pleaded guilty last year to charges he had shared sensitive information with a Satanist neo-Nazi group in a plot to kill members of his own unit while they were serving overseas. The former soldier, Ethan Phelan Melser of Louisville, Kentucky, was a member of the Order of the Nine Angles, <laughs> or O9A, okay. or ONA. ONA. O9A, okay. A white supremacist, neo-Nazi, Satanist, jihadist group that promotes extreme violence to accelerate and cause the demise of Western civilization. According to prosecutors, the group which expresses admiration for Hitler and Osama bin Laden instructs its followers to infiltrate various organizations like the military and street gangs to gain training and experience in violent tactics. Meltzer enlisted in the army in 2018 and in 2019 he was deployed to Italy as a member of the 173rd Airborne Brigade Combat Team, 
While there, he subscribed to encrypted online forums where he downloaded videos of jihadist attacks on U.S. troops and consumed far-right neo-Nazi and other white supremacist propaganda. In May 2020, Meltzer was reassigned to a unit guarding an isolated and sensitive military base in Turkey. Meltzer then shared the precise location of the military base, the number of soldiers who would be guarding the installation, and how they would be armed with O9A. In other words, he shared that information with O9A. He also provided the information to facilitate what he called a mass cal, or a mass casualty attack on his platoon. He thought that this direct attack on his unit would provoke the United States into a foreign war. Kind of a Charles Manson thing. (laughs) By May 26, 2020, a confidential FBI source had exposed Meltzer's scheme to law enforcement officials, and now he's serving 45 years in prison. Good. Who was the the, uh, Oklahoma City bomber? Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh. They were also in that vein of trying to essentially start a a civil war within the country, right, Uh by undermining the federal government. That was Uh the idea, causing some kind of chaos. Uh, Here's the news I don't like coming out of Washington. uh, From the Washington Post, Gigi Sohn. President Biden's pick to serve as a telecommunications regulator is withdrawing her nomination to the Federal Communications Commission after a bitter 16-month lobbying battle that blocked her appointment and opened her up to relentless personal attacks. Sohn, a longtime public interest advocate and former Democratic FCC official who was first nominated by the White House in October 2021, That's a long time to be sitting around waiting on this. Said her decision to withdraw follows unrelenting, dishonest, and cruel attacks seeded by cable and media industry lobbyists. The opposition to Sohn catapulted the relatively low-profile position into the center of an unprecedented fight that included three Senate confirmation hearings, a series of ads, op-eds, and a billboard criticizing Sohn as extreme and partisan. Sohn's decision to bow out leaves the Biden administration's ambitious internet agenda in limbo, continuing more than two years of deadlock at the FCC. Biden came into office on promises to reverse a wave of deregulation during the Trump administration and commitments to restore Obama net neutrality protections. And that's the heart of this. Yes. Manchin dealt a a critical blow to Sohn, though, Joe Manchin announcing he would not vote against her, accusing her of holding partisan alliances with far-left groups. Yeah. And what the far-left groups are are groups that want net neutrality. Yes. And they're not far-left. They're citizen groups. That's right. And I, I don't know if the idea of describing, categorizing the Internet as a utility is still in play, but that's also something that the, that the business interests of the Internet have been resisting. Yeah, that's what's going on here. Yeah. Sohn's exit is a blow to consumer advocacy groups who were eager to have one of their most prominent leaders in a position of power at the FCC. Yeah. Consumer advocacy groups. Yeah. That's not far left. Yeah. That's consumer people advocacy People that are trying to protect consumers, like most of the people in the United States. Sohn was the co-founder and CEO of Public Knowledge, a communications and tech policy advocacy organization that's advocated for competition digital rights, and open internet protections. That's far left. Yeah. Competition, (laughs) apparently, is far left. 
It was never about Gigi Sohn, said an Electric Frontier Foundation counsel. It has always been about preventing the FCC from doing its job. Yep. Yep. From Business Insider. As abortion bans across the nation are implemented and enforced, law enforcement is turning to social media platforms to build cases to prosecute women seeking abortions or abortion-inducing medication. And online platforms like Google and Facebook are helping. This spring, a woman named Jessica Burgess and her daughter will stand trial in Nebraska after being accused of performing an illegal abortion with a key piece of evidence provided by Meta, the parent company of Facebook. Prosecutors said Burgess helped her daughter find and take pills that would induce an abortion. The teenage Burgess also faces charges of illegally disposing of the fetal remains. So when you have fetal remains, what's the legal place to put them? Yeah. That would be my question. Internal chat logs were provided to uh, law enforcement officers by Meta, which indicated the pair had discussed their plan to find the medication through the app. According to internal statistics provided by Meta, the company complies with government requests for user data more than 70% of the time and receives more than 400,000 requests a year. Nearly a half million requests to find out what we're doing. Now, I'm sure some are really re legit. Yeah. But if they're using this to find out who is trying to get a hold of abortion pills? Yeah, exactly. This has really gotten out of control. The fact that uh, these legislatures in all these, a lot of states across the country are now passing laws that are essentially cutting off access for women to medications, period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that they should, that the fact that they're going to criminalize it as well is really, really dark and horrible. From Scientific American. For radio astronomers, the far side of the moon could be the last unspoilt refuge in the solar system. Planet Earth and all the human-made electromagnetic noise it spews out into space stays permanently below the horizon so that any radio observatories positioned on the far side of the moon would be free to observe the cosmos without interference. Nice. You got that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. but an upcoming boon in lunar exploration could put that at risk. In the next 10 years or so, the moon will be the target of hundreds of orbiters and landers, each of which could create radio noise on what is probably the most radio quiet place in the solar wow. system. I know China's spending a little money yeah. up there, right? The lunar far side has enormous potential for many fields, but it holds unique promise for cosmology, the science of the origin and development of the universe. Astronomers have mapped the sky using much of the spectrum of electromagnetic waves, but cosmic radio waves at frequencies below 100 megahertz are extremely challenging to measure from Earth. That's why this uh, base on the dark side or quiet side of the moon is important. In 2026, a small U.S. lander called the Lunar Surface Electromagnetic Experiment, or LUCY, <laughs> will be the first dedicated cosmology mission to take advantage of the quiet dark side of the moon. Wow. And it is being designed with that goal in mind. However, more than 250 noisy moon missions are expected over the coming decade, with the space agencies of the U.S., Europe, Russia, South Korea, China, Japan, India, Canada, and the United Arab Emirates, as well as a host of a lot of private companies. That will add up to a $100 billion noise lunar economy. There are also plans to install a lunar satellite navigation system, which could also be a source of noise. 
So what we need here is more governance on the moon, it sounds like. Now let's come back home from the moon to the UC Irvine campus. Is that right? Yeah, from the Orange County Register. Renowned UC Irvine biological sciences professor Francisco Ayala, who is also a major donor to the university, agreed to resign his post after the school substantiated sexual harassment claims made by four women. The university announced in a statement this week that it will remove Ayala's name from the School of Biological Sciences, a science library, and endowed chairs, graduate fellowships, and scholar programs. University officials said in an investigation substantiated by four women's claims that Ayala sexually harassed them. In a written statement, however, Ayala describes his conduct as the good manners of a European gentleman and said he regrets that it made some colleagues uncomfortable. Ayala, 84, has been at UC Irvine since 1987. Born in Spain, Ayala was ordained as a young man but never worked as a priest because he chose to pursue his interest in science. His exclusive list of research and publications includes work on the evolutionary process, genetics, and parasite diseases such as malaria. Among his many accolades are 21 honorary doctorates, the 2001 National Medal of Science, and the 2010 Templeton Prize, which came with $1.5 million that he donated to UCI. In 2011, he made a $10 million gift to the school, which was heralded as the largest ever by a UC Irvine faculty member. It is unclear how much Ayala gave the school overall or whether any of the money will be returned. <laughs> the four women who asked the university to publicly identify them are graduate student Michelle Herrera, assistant professor Jessica Pratt, assistant dean Benedict Shipley, and professor Kathleen Tresseter. Ayala's behavior included verbal comments that are wildly inappropriate and sexually charged about women's appearances and physical touching. Okay. I think he asked someone to sit on his lap at a meeting that was crowded and kissed their cheeks. His comments, I don't know. I can imagine him saying nice things about their bodies and yeah. them being offended. The fact that he is 84 years old yeah. may have played into that. Oh, he's a bit. dirty old man, isn't he? Well, I just think he... I'm try, I don't want to sound like I'm justifying anything that was truly terrible, but men of a certain age are still locked into a certain mindset. Well, they're men. Yeah. When you're in an old body, yeah. you don't always see the body that you're in. Yeah. You're in your mind. In his statement, Ayala acknowledged that he would greet women colleagues warmly with a kiss to both cheeks and compliment their beauty but intended no offense. UCI political science professor Christine Monroe wrote in an email that she thinks Ayala's behavior toward women may have been misinterpreted. I'm baffled and surprised at the charges against Professor Ayala since nothing in our interactions over some 20 years suggests he treats women with anything but respect and courtesy. <laughs> and finally, from Insider... The holy anointing oil used at the coronation of King Charles III will be animal cruelty-free. <laughs> the oil has previously contained wax from the intestines of sperm whales and civet secretions. Oh, my God. 
Uh, civets are like a cross between a cat and a mongoose. They're, okay. they're not really, but they look that way, in case you're wondering what a civet is. Apparently, they secrete. <laughs> a new formula was prepared in a religious ceremony in Jerusalem. The anointment of Charles is so sacred, Mike, that you and I can't see it. <laughs> it was banned from being filmed at Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953. In case you're wondering, the new vegan chrism oil, predominantly olive oil, will contain a mixture of rose, jasmine, cinnamon, sesame, and orange blossom. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.